in Esther chapter 4, we will be reading the first four verses, and you are perhaps, if you've had an opportunity so far, you've looked ahead at those verses and you're wondering, what in the world is he doing? I'm doing a couple of things. I'm, number one, wrapping up a, a look at the Old Testament with you guys that I hope has been beneficial to you. And if you have gotten absolutely nothing else out of this um, lengthy series on the Old Testament, I pray that you have gotten this one thing. The Old Testament is a Christian book. And it is a story of redemption it is a story of God's great faithfulness to His people. It is not some antiquated, outdated, obsolete book that has nothing to do with us or the God of the New Testament. It is the precursor of your New Testament. Your New Testament is the final chapter of your Bibles. But another thing I'm doing is hopefully... Preparing us for this season of Thanksgiving and preparing us as we cast our eyes ahead toward the season of Advent and the life of the church. This really is a story of, um, of good in the midst of bad, or good coming out of bad. And we know from the New Testament that God is a God who is able to turn even the worst of life circumstances um, into means of His blessings for us as we love Him. So Esther chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, we read, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gates, for no, no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs, came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. As I understand it, in November of 1946, just soon after the close of the Second World War, there were three shepherds, Bedouin shepherds, in the Qumran area in Judea. And from what I understand, perhaps a sheep went wandering off, but they came upon some caves. And of course, knowing that genies live in caves in Arabia, they didn't want to go in. So perhaps they took up a a stone or two, tossed them in, and wouldn't you know it, they heard the sound of breaking ceramic. In the days that would follow, they would discover in this cave, and then as the months would follow, in multiple other caves, they would find scrolls 
of scripture and scrolls of ancient writings, some 2,000 years old or more, which came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were housed in these earthen vessels, and they were tucked away in these caves. There are all sorts of speculations as to where these scrolls came from, perhaps an Essene group of folks who have gone out to live in the desert. We looked at the Essenes in the first of our lectures on the early church just a few weeks back on Sunday evenings. If you haven't had a chance to do so, you can go and listen to those via the Faith Methodist podcast. But 1946, perhaps the greatest discovery of ancient texts, thousands upon thousands of scrolls and fragments of scrolls that had been preserved for a couple of thousand years. It's interesting what was found and what was not found. Among these scrolls were whole scrolls of some of the greatest books of the Old Testament. Book of Isaiah, Psalms. Unbelievable. Either scrolls or fragments of scrolls were found for every single book in the Old Testament, save only one. And you guessed right. That's Esther. Kind of awkward. Esther is missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There, now, there are some scholars who think that, um, that perhaps they have fragments of Esther, but nothing really conclusive. And if you read through the book of Esther, ten chapters, if you, uh, if you use your Bible Gateway app on your phone, you can actually listen to it, and you'll have it read to you within 30 minutes. It's not a very long book. But if you read through it, or if you pull up on your, on your laptop or your your iMac on your desktop, and you uh, do word searches, you'll find that there's not a single reference, not a single direct reference by name or by person to God. There's no reference to God. There's no reference to Lord throughout the book of Esther. That's puzzling. Esther is the story of um, what, be, what would become a festival in, in the Jewish community called Purim, which simply means lots, like the casting of lots. The gambling, you know, throwing some dice, pulling straws, casting lots. This book was a song. It was used for celebration in a Jewish festival. Celebrating, though he's not mentioned by name, the faithfulness of Yahweh to his people. I've often asked my question, where's God? Where's God in Esther? He's not mentioned by name. You've got no direct reference to him. Where is he? And then as I consider the season of Thanksgiving, specifically the day of Thanksgiving, Turkey Day as we call it, I've asked myself the question, where's God? You know, Thanksgiving, I often mention, is the most overlooked 
holiday there is. Christmas is the most commercialized. Thanksgiving is the most overlooked. Thanksgiving, however, has become kind of hijacked. It's no longer really overlooked. It's now becoming perhaps the most commercialized. You know, Black Friday no longer is limited to Black Friday. Kind of like the Christmas season is no longer limited to the Christmas season because the Christmas season actually begins on Christmas Day. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. You know, Black Friday is kind of leaked back over into Thanksgiving Day or Turkey Day. A day where we celebrate food and fellowship and football and family. Those are all good things. Those are things I like to celebrate on Thanksgiving. But I often wonder, where is God, not just in the book of Esther, but where is God in Thanksgiving? Because, I mean, there are some awfully pagan people who celebrate Thanksgiving. In case you haven't noticed, there are also some awfully pagan people who celebrate Christmas. What makes our giving of thanks particularly Christian? What is it about Esther's book that makes it particularly Christian? Why is it in here? Why is it in our Old Testament? If you go back and look through the articles of religion of the people called Methodists that Wesley laid out for that movement, you find what you find also in the Book of Common Prayer for the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church. Esther is included in the Old Testament. Unwaveringly declared to be Scripture. Where's God? Where's God in this story? Because this story is a story of despair. It's a story that tells us of a man named Mordecai and his great stubbornness. It tells us of a a, a cruel and evil man named Haman and his terrible vengeance. It's a story that though it bears Esther's name, it's not a story about her being some hero or heroine. It's a story really of her hopelessness. Her cousin, Mordecai, who's raised her, she was an orphan, as his very own. He finds out about a decree that has gone out from the king who happens to be Esther's pagan king husband that she married by virtue of winning a beauty contest. Very awkward story. She was so gorgeous, she just showed up and he said, whoa, my new wife. The other one had been deposed because she didn't want to be his trophy wife and didn't want to, as the vegetables would say, didn't want to make him a sandwich in the middle of the night. She was tired. It's a story of despair. There is no hope in the book of Esther. They're living, Israel is living in the land of the Medes and the Persians. Their people have gone back home, some of them, but their people are spread far and wide throughout the kingdom. And this little Jewish lady, Esther, becomes queen to a pagan king. And Haman... One of the king's officials has deep and abiding vengeance and anger 
toward the Jewish people because Mordecai, that stubborn cousin of Esther's, refused to pay him tribute and bow the honor that was due him. So Haman works up a plot. We're going to slaughter the Jews. The king falls for it because Esther's been told by Mordecai, don't tell him of your nationality. Don't let him know that. It's a, it's a story that's got many, many twists and turns and all sorts of weird details about it. But ultimately, it's a story of Mordecai going to Esther saying, we're doomed. And Esther saying, yeah, you're right, we're doomed. She can't even approach her husband, the king, to plea for mercy because she can only see the king when she's summoned. It's one of the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And those laws are irrevocable. So that's another conundrum to add into the mix. Were she to go to the king and say, hey, you've got a, you've got a ixnay on the, the decree day. You've got to pull back on this decree. He couldn't because the laws of the Medes and the Persians are irrevocable. This is a very hopeless situation. And so Mordecai wears sackcloth. I don't know if you've ever felt sackcloth. It's, uh, it's rough, scratchy, not very comfortable. He's not even allowed in the, the king's gates dressed in such a manner. But he's there, he's sitting, he's covered himself in ashes. He's just a big mess in his despair. A very hopeless situation. His people, including himself, are about to be slaughtered. There's no way out. Redemption is impossible. You know, my mind, in trying to always connect the Old to the New Testament, my mind races forward to Maundy Thursday, the betrayal of Judas. That's pretty hopeless. We don't mourn Judas. We mourn what his decision to betray his Lord brought about, and yet we also find our redemption in that betrayal. We find our redemption in what led by a betraying kiss from Judas. The situation was so hopeless for Judas, he went out and hung himself, the scriptures say. The disciples are running scared. All hope seems lost. But Esther is not just a story of despair. Esther is a story of redemption. It really is. 
Esther's not about Esther's faithfulness. It's about Yahweh's faithfulness. A desperate situation. She's married to a pagan king. There is no reasonable hope and slaughter is on the docket for God's people. And yet we hear of Yahweh's untellable faithfulness in redeeming His people in the midst and from the midst of the most impossible of circumstances. Somehow, God makes a way. Somehow, God infuses the despair of Israel with the hope of redemption. Again, more and more twists and turns in the story. Esther, somehow, the scriptures say that she found grace and mercy, grace and favor in the king when she approached him unsummoned, able to be sentenced to death for doing so, she found grace and mercy in the eyes of the king. She must have been some wife. She says, I got a request for you. He says, not just, okay, I'm not going to kill you. He says, whatever you want. I'll give it to you. I'll give you even most of my kingdom. What do you want? I'd like to have dinner with you and Haman. Okay, sounds like a plan. As the events would unfold, Esther, um, Esther leads the king, her husband, to the realization of what Haman has done and the killing that was prepared for the Jewish people becomes the killing that is now turned on Haman. Peter Kraft, one of the philosophers that I enjoy listening to, he speaks of the cross of Christ as kind of God's judo where God lures in the worst of the, de- of the devil's plans and turns them on him. You've got a little bit of that divine judo taking place in the book of Esther. Again, my mind rushes ahead toward the New Testament. And thinking of the betrayal of Judas and then the cross of Christ and how God brings redemption in the midst of our despair. Of how God doesn't leave us in despair, but He turns our, our despair into rejoicing. And my mind is puzzled by the fact that Esther is also a story of rejoicing. It would become a song, a hymn, to be sung celebrating a feast for Israel. Because Yahweh had proven Himself faithful. He had proven Himself to be always good and always merciful to His people. This is not a story about a a brave woman. 
though she is brave. It's a story of God's redeeming love for His people. About His faithfulness. And about His ability to save and rescue even when things seem hopeless and impossible. It was on that first Easter Sunday that the disciples' minds were blown by the appearance of their risen Lord. Their mourning and their despairing is transformed into rejoicing and celebrating. Where is God? The season that is ahead tells us that He is Emmanuel with us. The psalmist tells us that He inhabits our praises. He is in our thankfulness and He's in our thanksgiving. He is with us. See, to ask the question, where in the world is God in Esther to use a, uh, an, a non-biblical reference, it'd be like saying, where's God in the Lord of the Rings? Well, good grief, He's permeating every page. Where's God in our world? When we're surrounded by despair, when we're surrounded by hopelessness, when we think we're in the most impossible of circumstances, where's God? The Gospel tells us He's with us. And He's in the midst of our thanksgiving. The Scriptures call us not to give thanks for bad things, but the Scriptures do call us to give thanks even in the midst of bad things. Because despite the bad, God is always good to His people. This does not dismiss or demean those situations we find ourselves in that are bad. But what it does is it gives us hope. That God is able to bring about good. That God is the God of redemption. And redemption always, always implies an impossible situation. You don't redeem someone from a happy life. You don't redeem someone from joy. You don't redeem someone from everything being comfy, cozy, and snuggly. You redeem from the brink. You redeem from the pit. You redeem from despair. This week we're invited... To give thanks. And I want to encourage you. Give thanks. But give thanks Christianly. What do I mean by that? I mean three things. If you've got the ability to write. Please write these things down. Just very, very quickly. Number one. Slow down. And be thankful. That may sound like a no brainer. 
you give thanks, of course you're going to be thankful. Slow down and be thankful. Slowing down takes work. It takes saying, no, I can't. It takes saying, not today, but maybe later. But slow down and be thankful. The second thing I want to challenge you to do so that you're actually giving thanks Christianly and not just to some generic God who's, you know, giving you good things or thankful for just our blessings, is express your thankfulness in word. That's where thankfulness actually becomes thanksgiving, because thanksgiving is the giving of thanks. And so it's not enough just to be grateful. It's not enough just to be thankful. And all throughout the Scripture, we have this call to thanksgiving. You can't escape it. Paul's epistles are littered with Notes of be thankful. Give thanks. And then lastly, thirdly, thank God in Christ. That may sound weird and that may sound formal, that may sound liturgical to you, but if your thanksgiving is not centered in the person of Jesus, then you're not giving thanks as a Christian. You're just giving thanks as someone who lives a happy and comfortable life. See your blessings as gifts from the hands of your Lord. Not just gifts miraculously bestowed on you by the virtue of life, but as the Apostle James said, They're gifts coming down from above from the Father of lights without whom there is, no, there is no wavering, there is no shadow of turning. He's called you to be His people and He gives His blessings. And so thank Him. Don't just be thankful. Don't just express thankfulness. Express your thankfulness to Jesus. If you've looked ahead in your bulletins, you've noticed perhaps a couple of things. One is that we'll be ending our service with Holy Communion. And the other is that we're going to be singing a kind of upbeat praise song beforehand. That's intended. In the early church, Sunday worship was a time of celebration. It was a time of rejoicing. Because their Redeemer lives. Throughout the early centuries, communion, what they called the Eucharist, was a meal of celebration. They approached it not with mourning, not with sadness, not with sorrow. They, even repentance, came secondary to this meal. What it was primarily was a meal of celebration, a meal of thanksgiving, of joy. That's what the word Eucharist means. It means thanksgiving. So in Greek, 
This coming Thursday is Eucharist Day. It, um, it puzzled me this week as I was looking at the Gospels and as I was looking at Christ instituting the Lord's Supper of a very, a very common phrase that I've read thousands of times in my life that have never sunk in like they did this week. Think of it. The scriptures are very plain to us that when Maundy Thursday comes, Jesus knows exactly what that means. On Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and he knows that he is the Lamb of God being given for the sins of the world. He knows that he is being betrayed. He knows that he is walking into a setup. John tells us that when Maundy Thursday begins, specifically Jesus, knowing what lay before him and knowing what Satan had put into the heart of Judas, that he celebrates a meal with them. He washes their feet. He enjoys Passover. And when he takes bread, Judas is at the table. Judas is at the table. He breaks bread and he grabs a chalice and the scriptures say, and he gave thanks. If that doesn't shock you, that he knows what will happen within the next few hours, that he knows that his hands will be nailed to a cross, and yet he gives thanks when he breaks bread and says, this is my body, which is for you. And this is my blood, which is for you. He gave thanks. If we have convinced ourselves that we have no reason to give thanks, we have lied to ourselves. And we have blinded ourselves. We should give thanks. We approach this table not with mourning. If we weep, we should weep tears of joy. Because God is the God who redeems. He is the God who steps into our despair and comes bearing reason for rejoicing. He is the God who redeems. Let's pray.